Hello, I'm Ellis Chong, host and unlicensed therapist at the Black Writer Therapy Podcast, where we uplift and amplify, and you know we have to celebrate, Black women writers who not only have the audacity to put healing balm into every word they compose, but they have the nerve to go into the publishing industry and thrive even where there isn't a space being held for them. So I promise you, you do not want to miss this conversation. I suggest you keep it where you got it. Paulette Stout is joining Ella today on the proverbial couch for an exceptional Black Writer Therapy podcast session. Paulette is the 15-time award-winning and fearless author of fast-paced contemporary fiction that tackles social issues often ignored in society. Her latest release, What Eyes Can't See, was called a highly recommended love story of justice, redemption, and struggle by Midwest Book Review. You can usually find Paulette rearranging words into pleasing patterns while wearing grammar t-shirts at her home in Acton, Massachusetts. And now, your host and unlicensed therapist with an early season two session, Ella Sean. Hello, Miss Paulette Stout. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Ella. No, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm super excited. I am about halfway through the book. And I just have to tell you, even though I feel like I know you, like, no, not know you, know you, but I'm familiar with you, yes? I am really impressed with your writing. Thank you. Really impressed with your writing. And it is because it, I think I'm going to say this all wrong, but it feels like I'm walking with you through the story, but not you the character. I feel like I'm walking with the character in the story and I'm not rooting for anything at this moment. Like your writing allows me to be very objective and I don't know how you do that. That's crazy because in most cases I'm already like, oh, I hate this person. I hate da 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 da. But the way you write and the characters, you know, that you are portraying, I feel like I'm not in a judgmental place with them. If you Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I mean, everyone experiences the books differently. I do try to be very intentional about how I unravel the complex themes that I take on. So this one is taking on race and class and those are kind of weighty. And you, know, you sometimes read books where an author has a perspective and you can feel that through the characterization. It's like those characters are up on a soapbox and they're preaching. And that's fine, and that works for some books. But for me, I'm really trying to change hearts and minds about important issues that I believe we should be talking about more. And I just feel like we do that best by experiencing them ourselves and coming to our own conclusions. So mm -hmm. I, I don't lead people in a specific direction. I kind of present them with a scenario of factors, and then I let them walk away with their own you know, new insights about those topics. You, my friend, are talented. I'm so serious. Like, I am going to have to, like, after this whole situation, we're going to have to set a meeting because you do effortlessly what my my grace writing model and the ah. courses that I'm in the process of, of writing, you do it effortlessly. Like, so. Thank you. Well, there's you might... effort that goes into it. 
Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> because like when something is that nuanced, I know it's hard work. So I just, you know, fangirl quite a bit because that's just who I am. And I uh, totally believe in giving roses when they're needed. Oh, yeah, I know. It's great. It's great. So that, my friend, was not a surprise because I, I knew, okay, obviously, that you were like bomb ass. But also, I remember seeing you at my workshop at the WFWA conference in Chicago. It was the first time I'd introduced my grace writing model. You remember the reaction of the room. It's exactly the kind of reaction your book is receiving. I'm looking uh, through your, your bio and you kept it so short and brief. And so I was like, I want more, I'm nosy. I need more information. But yeah, you kept it very brief. So 15 time award winning. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about the awards that you've won? I don't have them all by name, but they're across my three books. The The new one is already placed three times in for multicultural men's women's fiction. And oh, I should know the categories. I have to pull that up. Forgive me. I'll it's pull okay. It up for you. But yeah. 15 so times. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. But I do, you know, I always am like, hey, I'm going to apply. Why not apply? And, you know, I've just done really well on the ones I've applied for. I haven't placed in every single award that I've entered by no means, but I've been doing really well. And I think that as an independently published author, that kind of validation is helpful when you're engaging in the marketplace, when you're talking to other authors, who have different publishing paths. It's, it's helpful to know that, help them understand that you're putting out a quality product, even though you are self-publishing. I love that. And, you know, because obviously I'm an indie author as well. And like, just like being around you and just looking and studying what, what you're doing, you're like a guru <laughs> on the indie, uh, the indie side. I'm so impressed with it. And I want to pick your brain, right? Because you have this way of doing things and you're so organized and all the things. I love that for you. I keep forgetting sometimes that you are an indie author because, I mean, you have attained, I would say, a level of success. It's an award-winning writer. And I think that's a level of success that goes beyond marketplace success, but you also have that. So sometimes I'm just, I forget that you are an indie. I read something and in, in, I think it was Publisher Weekly Magazine, and they were debating whether indie authors should start calling ourselves author publishers, because we we are, we are authors who publish our own work and take it through the entire process. And I was like, yes. yeah, because I mean, I like that. That gives a little more distinction, I think. So you are a very accomplished author, publisher. And so I have to Thank remember you. that. Thank um, you. And I would like to anyone who's interested, and you might be interested, the Pulitzer Prize does accept submissions from independently author published works and i think i'm applying this year oh <laughs> my not? gosh really i yes. love that for yes so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna put what i can't see up there and we'll see what that you know it probably oh will go my nowhere, goodness. but you gotta be in it to win it right and i'm just kind of like <laughs> if the pulitzer prize recognizes that art is art no matter how it was published then i think that the rest of the industry has a lot of catching up to do you would think, and and ooh, that's 
okay, we can't talk about that just yet. That's segment two. <laughs> but yeah, you you would think. So there is something else I wanted to ask you about. Da 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 da. You stated that you write fast-paced contemporary fiction that tackles social issues often ignored. Could you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like when I was trying to, you know, I always talk about what's your why? What is the why that you are writing? And for me, my why was for twofold. I have things to say. I have things <laughs> that I want to talk about. And I sometimes look at, especially women's fiction, contemporary fiction, and, you know, I don't see some of those conversations happening. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, and I don't see the representation of characters as it should be. You know, it, you know, I tire of reading books of with all white casts with <laughs> no, you know, I enjoyed lessons in chemistry just like everybody else. She was on a soapbox about race and so forth. There was not one character of color in that entire book. Now, you can't tell me that in Southern California at that time period, <laughs> there were no, you know, there were no black people, there were no Mexican people, there were no Asian people, like, you know, Latino, you know, you can't say that it just simply didn't exist and no one noticed. And mm -hmm. that was a topical, you know, book where race was an issue and no one noticed that there was not one character of color in the entire book. So my why is to, you know, have these, you know, multicultural cast of characters, not because I'm trying to make some statement, but because that's the world we live in, that's the world I live in. And, you know, it's not right to erase whole cultures from right. the literary space. Right, right. And and so you you write them beautifully. And I read your acknowledgments and I think the note. And I was like, cause I knew, you know, from conversations in the past, what, but I was like, dang, the extent that you went to, to ensure that what you were writing was not based in any like, oh, stereotypes or, any of that stuff like you did all the things and why is that so important i want people who read my stories to know that they're true authentic and culturally accurate and so i put a lot of work i work with a lot of sensitivity readers in all of my books you know in the last book i had a therapy scene around you know unwanted sexual contact of women of men by women you know which is not something that's talked about so it's like i you can't just write about these things without knowing about them. So, you know, before I even put pen to paper, you know, I read books, two great books I read was The Memo by Minda Hartz and You Don't Look Like a Lawyer. They really talk and examine the cultural experience of women in the workplace and especially women lawyers because my protagonist is a black lawyer. I want to make sure that I'm not resorting to stereotypes, that I want to be true to that cultural experience. So I did that. I have said I did interviews with Black women before I started writing, just like, what are your concerns? What are you experiencing in your life? What are the types of situations that you find yourself in? And then once all of that was kind of processing and percolating, then I put pen to paper. And all along throughout the draft, I had these group of Black women that read the book and they were like, yes, this happened. My dad does that. Yes, this happens. That, not quite, this is a little bit more authentic. And I made those tweaks kind of along the way. And then when I got to the end of the book, I then engaged another sensitivity reader with, to come in with fresh eyes because other, the mm -hmm. other women were 
potentially invested in the story at that point. And I wanted a fresh eyes to come in and look at it and be like, is this right? And everyone has felt really seen on the page, the Black women who have read my stories. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like I got it right. I did put a lot of work into it, but I also wanted to be super transparent that I am a woman of color, but I'm not Black. And I wanted to make sure that that was front at the front of the book. If you're looking at the mm-hmm. look inside on Amazon, you can see and make a decision for yourself if this is a story you want to engage with. Right, right. And I think what, you know, and just where I am reading it, I wasn't like cringy. I've read books where there has not been a Black protagonist, right? But the Black side sidekick or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> no, we wouldn't. We would never. <laughs> and especially, especially when it's like down South. And so I just like, girl, bye. We would never say that. Those are not Black Seven phrases. And not that we, you know what I'm saying? Not that we don't have phraseology similar, but that's not us, right? And so it's just, I love that when I'm reading Barbara, I'm just reading Barbara. And the fact that I know that she is a Black woman, but it doesn't matter because you write her so beautifully. She's just like a woman to me. And... And I know that sounds crazy, but I'm a black woman, so I don't need to differentiate that she's black for me. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So when I'm that reading her, I relate to her. And so Thank she's you. just like Barbara, you know? Right. That means so much. And I I have the other piece of this that will go for the story was I grew up in Manhattan, which was extremely culturally diverse. All my parents, you know, my my dad's friends, you know, black professionals, Latina professionals, a lot of them were at you know, my best friend growing up who was like way wealthier than I was. And, you know, they were a black family. So like I was around successful black people my whole youth and growing up and adulthood. And then I open a book and they're missing. So for me, that was another piece, that socioeconomic piece to have Mm -hmm. a black family who was super successful and, you know, not on the brink of destitution, not living in an inner city struggling neighborhood you know so i just i just felt like some of those stereotypes were just so overplayed when i do see black characters in books often they're from those backgrounds and i don't see the professional class of black characters in stories i'm reading so that was a a very intentional choice that i wanted to have for for this book yeah that makes a lot of sense i know um i've had black people read my books black women have read my books and they're like I just don't see like black people living the way these people are living. And I'm like, but black people do live this way. Like this is not me in fairy tale land. Like this you can go out to Lake Murray and see black people in their lake homes. I don't like yeah. that always confounded me in, in the whole literary world. It's like it's only one kind of black that yes. you could put in a book. Right. Yeah. It's either it's like, I'm a singer, yeah. I'm Right. I'm a baller <laughs> or I'm a drug dealer or I'm poor and destitute. I'm tragic. I just come on now. Come on. So thank you so much. I really I, I love Barbara. She's like she could be my homegirl. <laughs> she could good. be my homegirl. Yeah. Everyone yeah. is really loving, love, loving Barbara, the character who's read her so far. Yeah. And I'm really proud. She's the character that I've written for two books and I've just had such affection for. And she deserved a book of her own and mm-hmm. I didn't want 
you know, our cultural backgrounds being different to stop me from giving her the platform I thought she deserved. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and the fact that you grew up in Manhattan, I think, because you're right, that is truly like the salad. I don't even call that a melting pot because everybody kind of <laughs> maintains their 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 own culture. <laughs> like, you know, I remember going to Manhattan and I, I was like, I'm not hearing English on any street. <laughs> Because everybody maintains their own language. And I'm just like, this is wicked cool. And so, yeah, I think having that background and that perspective would put you in the right position to do what you do so beautifully. And I think being a brown woman, I think, is helpful because there are some analogous experiences. I would never say that I I navigate the world as a Black woman because I don't. But I do navigate the world as a curiosity and, you know, with people asking you, like, what are you? And people like thinking I'm black. Did you say you're a curiosity? A little bit because people, you know, when, like I couldn't, when I was growing up in Manhattan, like even Manhattan, you just said it's a salad. I would go get a slice of pizza and I'm waiting for it to heat up and be like, what are you? Like, what are you? It was always like this demographic litmus test that I had to pass whenever I went into like a restaurant or I was having an exchange with people. They always look, what are you? What are you? And it just, just asking that question is othering, you know, and it didn't right. have the language to kind of understand what a lifetime of that happening does to you. But in writing this book, you know, I learned so much about my own identity and experience. And, you know, I some of the things that happened in the book to Barbara and that happened to my sensitivity readers, you know, has happened to me, you know, too. So, you know, in terms of right. being looked in suspicion in stores, you know, not having the advancement, you know, trajectory that other colleagues have despite experience. And, you know, I have an MBA and I went to Ivy League College, you know, like I deserve abortion, you know? (laughs) Right. Okay. Things like that. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. So it's like, oh, you missed your opportunity. You didn't do, it's like, what do you mean I missed my opportunity? You know, it's it's just like, it just happened too many times, but working on this story helped me to kind of, reflect on my life and look at some of those experiences through a a different lens, through a racial lens, frankly, because, you know, when I was growing up, it was, you know, colorblind world, melting pot, you know, don't talk about race. Right, right. I was doing my best like to not think about race and not put race at the forefront of my mind, but it was always there. And I was navigating a world that was seeing it, pretending like it wasn't there, but it was there all along. And Mm -hmm. You know, now I feel like I have the the language and the skills and the the wisdom to look back at it and look at some experiences. I'm like, yeah, you know, that isn't quite right. You know, that could have been not yeah. just because of me, but it could have been some, you know, unconscious bias or even conscious bias or whatever going mm-hmm. on in that work situation or not. So it's it's been so life changing for me. Wow. Experience. So you would say that. What Eyes Can't See this was like your most cathartic book. I, I would, I absolutely so far. Would. It's, yeah. You know, the other ones were just felt like it was a scream I had to get out, you know, in the first, mm-hmm. in my purple book. I just felt like- That's beautiful. Ah, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. This one was just really made me go deep into my own life, my own identity, my own experiences, looking mm-hmm. at them. And then- reflecting that back out on how I engage with the world and how I'm observing behaviors and things and situations and 
you know, being more mindful of some of the racial undertones of things that I might have been not as sensitive to before or that I was pretending weren't there maybe because mm. I didn't want them to be there. You know? <laughs> yep. That part. That yep. part. I love that. I love that when you're writing, you're you're taking care of your your healing too. Yes. So that leads me to my favorite question. How are you healing today? It's interesting because there's a piece of me that I'm, I'm usually a typical, I'm pretty happy, optimistic, just always moving forward type of person. But there are pieces of me that are kind of angry, that are kind of hmm. angry about some of the things that have happened in my life that, you know, maybe made my road harder than it mm -hmm. needed to be, made me, you know, take on assignments when I didn't want to, you know, making, delaying my promotion until basically everyone else had quit and I was the only one left, even though I probably should have been the first one promoted, you know, things like that, yeah. you know, that I didn't have the, the capacity to kind of deconstruct in the same way at the time like now i'm just mm -hmm. like yeah that really sucks you know i'm i'm kind of pissed off about that so i'm trying to this healing process is also trying to you know manage some of those unresolved emotions that i didn't express at the time these latent mm -hmm. things that are now like coming up and making me a little a little pissed off about a few things you know i'm just trying to manage that and get to a place where it can be used in a positive way yeah yeah, I imagine like that's, I think that's the double-edged sword of writing, right? Like you're telling stories from like perspectives of these, you know, faraway characters. But of course, if you're worth your grain of salt as a writer, you're going to dredge up all this stuff. And then you're, you're done with the book and then you're left <laughs> with all this stuff that came up and you're like, yeah. well, shoot, I don't have another book right now to write this Ella, down in. I was supposed to have started writing my next book in September. At the, at the end of September mm -hmm. and I took a writing break. I almost like, I just needed, you know, and I went, I, I've gone back to the page and I'm writing again, but I needed a break because I felt almost like a hangover from Barbara and Sebastian. Yeah. I felt I had a hangover from this really emotional journey and this exploration. And I feel like I'm, I'm on the other side of it moving forward now with the next book, but it did take me some time away from the page just to kind yeah. of think. Yes, and process. And I, I wonder how many writers give themselves permission to take that break because it's always, well, on to the next one. But like, yeah, I could see when you write something that's like draining, but also beautiful and you're telling the hard stories. That's what I call them. You're telling the hard stories that people don't necessarily want to tell. And that's really hard on, on the writer. And so good for you for taking that break. You know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you, you gave yourself permission to do that. Yeah. It was the first time in three, like I began on this latest, like really buckling down, you know, in the spring of 2020. So I have been just like writing and publishing and writing and publishing nonstop since then. You know, this is the third book. There's the anthology that came out. I've written a bunch of prequels and short stories and holiday stories and building the, you know, authorpreneur like you're talking about, building the whole author bridge pl platform. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't <gasps> taken that moment to breathe, you know? Yes. And 
I needed that. I really needed that. And I allowed myself not to feel guilty about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause that, that, uh, that's the other part, the guilt. Like I really should be. I had a yoga instructor who told me, you know, if you take should out of your vocabulary, you'll be a lot happier should and supposed to. And I was like, really? Just a couple of words. And so she was <laughs> correct. She was correct. Just yeah, because that should always imp implies that you're not doing what you are meant to be doing. And resting is what you're meant to be doing, right? My daughter says this to me all the time. Rest is resistance. I was like, yes, I know. I know the book. <laughs> I love that. I tried to get, look, I tried to get her on the show. She, she's like, no. And don't expect a, a quick reply. <laughs> she lives her brand, which I love. But rest is resistance and rest is a a right, not a privilege. I'm learning that from her. It is, and it can be really, you know, people who aren't in the indie publishing community don't necessarily understand the kind of, the pressure cooker it can be for people to kind of keep yeah. up. You know, there's mm -hmm. the whole notion of rapid releasing with some authors publishing once a month and, you know, three or four times a year and like all kinds of things, you know, it's just, like you hear that and you just feel like you're behind the eight ball. And I just decided initially, read from the beginning, I am what what Orna Ross from Alliance of Independent Authors calls a craft publisher, indie publisher. I publish slower. I take a lot more care with the construction of the stories. So I'm going to be publishing more on like 12 to 14 month schedule versus like a one month schedule. And I'm okay with that but I still was in that little hamster wheel and I just took myself off mm -hmm. this week. And I'm just like, you know what, I'm gonna, if we are really independent, then we can choose our own path. So that's what I'm that trying part. to navigate. I love that. I'm gonna write that down. That's gonna make it on a quote card. If we are really <laughs> independent, yeah. And that's the thing, it's like, have you ever considered like traditional publishing? Have you ever considered going that route? I did initially with my first book, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was queer. I had another book before Lovely Better, my first published, indie published book. I had another book, it was a murder mystery and I queried that a lot. And then I kind of put that aside and I started Lovely Better. And that one took probably like 17 years to do. And I didn't want to be the orgasm lady on the sidelines. So I kind of gotcha. put it aside until a little later. Um, <laughs> but now that I've learned the nuances of the publishing industry, I would be very hesitant to do a, a traditional publishing deal unless it was something like, you know, Pam Kelly just did, who is a very well-established indie author with, you know, scores of titles to her name and just looking to reach a different audience, you know, at the bookstores, you know, so that's something mm -hmm. that traditional publishers basically dominate. So. If it's something like that, where you can expand an audience in another outlet into foreign rights, I, I think I would consider it in, in targeted ways. Mm -hmm. But just to hand my book over to somebody, the, the types of book I write that have social, you know, themes that are controversial with, you know, intimacy and, you know, I, I just... I feel like they would find my books hard to market and would want yep. me to change them to put them in a box that they could stick on a shelf instead of having this more like full, really rich experience I'm trying to create for readers. Yeah, that is my fear. 
You know, I, I ask every writer on the show, and most of them have been traditional, except for maybe four or five, and had a couple of hybrids. And I'm just like, I know for a fact, they would, yeah, rip my books apart and make me water them down. And it wouldn't be the story that my characters demanded, I tell. Yes. And so I keep going back and forth. I don't know what is going to happen. But like you, I've had to take a writing break because I'm just like, and I had been with these people. Look, I act like they're like, for real, for like 13 years. So <laughs> I need it. I needed a break. I hear you. Um, I, was with, I was with Pat and Rebecca for like, you know, 19 years because the first book took so long and the second book was 14 months. So when I went on to Barbara and Sebastian, I had to rethink everything. I had to rethink how they communicated, their bolder characters, they talk differently. They're more assertive. They make love in a more aggressive way than yes. Rebecca would that are way more tender. So like I would write a scene. I'm like, nope. You know, Sebastian wouldn't say that. That's Kyle. Oh, no, 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 no. Barbara would never say that. That's a Barbara thing. You know, so you See, have to yeah. make sure that you're being true to who the character is as you're writing. But it's hard after you've been with a certain set of characters for a long time. Exactly. So yeah, that's, I mean, it's, um, it's good. It is good to have you know that, or to get you know having another set of eyes on it, whether it's a coach or a beta reader. I had, I was a mentor to a writer earlier last year for about three four months, and you know we where her manuscript was at the beginning and where it was at the end. It was really great to see the evolution of. We sometimes go into stories with these preconceptions of what we want, and then we think about what the story is, and you realize, you know, that character isn't doing anything, and that character's not doing anything, and I don't want to meet that other character, and why would that person do that? You know, you start kind of deconstructing things, and you realize what your book needs versus maybe what you thought it needed when you were going. Right. In. So taking right. that time is important. It is. It is. So... I want to talk a little bit about intentional. We've been talking about it. I think we've already been talking about intentional writing, which I define as writing that heals or is part of a healing process. So I know you've had art readers reading it and have you gotten any feedback that said, girl, this healed a huge part of me as well. Savannah J. Frierson is a USA Today best-selling and award-winning author telling stories of beautifully imperfect women discovering they are worthy, desirable, and deserving of love just as they are. In addition to writing, Savannah is a freelance editor, Gallup Certified Strengths Coach, and a speaker and workshop facilitator. As a coach and consultant, Savannah has worked with clients in various fields and focuses on bringing people into alignment with what they naturally do well to help people get clear about their goals and the best ways to achieve them. And now back to the Black Writer Therapy I think it was a little bit different. I think with most of my readers, they would say, I, you have no idea what it means to me to be feel seen on the page. For me, it was just to feel there, I'm opening a book and there's someone like me there. That was what I was hearing a little bit more, you know, often than the healing. And maybe that is the healing. Maybe that that's is the healing. I was going to say, that's the healing. Maybe like I am being seen. I exist in this world and here I am in this book and there's someone like me in this book. Like I would have that conversation with my dad. Me and my aunt, like we're the same way. You know, this, you know, I have issues. I don't want to wear braids or whatever. You know, like, you know, my mom's. Yes. Oh my brain. gosh. You know, it's like, you know, yes. a lot of that stuff was, you know, they were like, that That happens in my house, you know? Yes. So I think that that was, you know, that was definitely healing for them. And I've, 
you know, every people are really liking the book. Like, I'm not just trying to like toot my own horn here, but I feel like toot your darn horn, girl, because the book is good. <laughs> it's great. Yes, you don't want to toot your horn. Toot toot. I'll toot it for you. Yes, the book and is I think amazing. Also, and this this is maybe getting a little bit away from the question, but you know, I have also been healing and progressing as a writer. Like I'm taking the experiences and the learnings that I've had and the feedback that I've had for my other books of things people like, things like I liked it, but I wish this was a little bit different, you know? So, you know, I listened to those and I incorporated them here. So I changed the book from third person to first person. I have, you know, longer chapters with like one character per chapter, you know? So people can kind of immerse themselves in that scene and that person for a little bit longer before mm-hmm. it jumps to the next person. So I think a few of those structural things helped readers, you know, better connect with each of the characters. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's, I think it's fair to say that women who say, oh my gosh, I feel seen, like that's so huge. If anybody ever asked me, what is it that you want most in life? It is to be seen and seen for who I am and appreciate it. And you put that in this book beautifully. So that is the healing. Do you, when you're writing, are you like considering, I hope this... I hope this helps so-and-so and this group of people and da 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 Is that kind of in the back of your mind or are you like just, I'm writing this story because I have to write this story? When I'm writing, you know, sometimes the characters are very surprising and they will bring forth like moments and reflections and episodes of things that are true to the moment, that moment in the story. And maybe that's why they make them a little bit more resonant for people when they're reading. But I'm not intentionally thinking, I'm trying to get this point across, so I'm going to put this, you know, situation in the story or this, you know, set this, like, this conversation or so forth. It's more about how is the character going to get to where she needs to be? And yes. Like, what are, what are the, what's the evolution that she needs to get there that's believable and relatable for people? I think I'm more concerned with the characters being relatable um Mm -hmm. and authentic then because anything that's is off like pops readers out of the story you know you're in the moment and then you're like oh that's not real that's not you know it 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 kind of detaches them from the reading experience so i try to make sure that it's the best of my ability that i don't have those in the story as much as possible obviously everyone's different and they're going to bring their own experiences but i'm I'm intentional about trying to be authentic to the story. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that intentionality, it does translate into healing. And so I honestly, and I read anything because that's what I do. And I don't care what race the person is. I I will read anything except horror. I can't read that. (laughs) So too big of an imagination. And what I find is that, and I can just, I'm going to say it, right? Because BIPOC women, when there's something in the writing, I usually say, because we Black women, but today we BIPOC women, there's something in our in our DNA that bleeds onto the paper that heals, you know? And I, I had this conversation, this is so crazy, so don't judge me, but I was uh, playing around with chat GPT-4. Mm. And because I do that a lot and just to kind of flesh out my thoughts. And so I asked the question, what is it about the intersectionality of being a woman of color 
and a writer in America that makes BIPOC women writers work so necessary? And the answer was crazy. Like, do you ever do that with chat GPT? Am I on? I'm alone. <laughs> I, do, I don't ask just kind of really existential questions like that. My, my, my use of it has been a little bit more tactical for like, I'm trying to accomplish something in my business writing. I'm a marketer by day, but I've had some, I'm interested to hear your response because I've had some challenges when I try to do some marketing content around my story because it has a black protagonist and a white protagonist. And I kept getting answers back like, this is offensive, I can't give you an answer. You know, and I was just trying to get like imagery or anything related to an interracial couple. Like all the AI tools were telling me that I it was not an acceptable query and it was like offensive or I couldn't even get an answer. So I just threw up my hands. I was very disappointed because I have written articles for my clients and software about the bias that's in current in the software interested. So I'm super interested to hear what your query was. Part of the 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 caution that we have to have around using some of these AI tools in terms of, you know, bias is that when research was done, most of the algorithms were programmed by, you know, mostly white and Asian men who went to the same mm -hmm. schools, had very similar upbringings and experiences. So when they were when they program some of these software solutions, they don't even know that it's biased because they're just looking at it going on own cultural lens. And so like when I use some of my writing tools, like I have like in the book right now, what I can't see, I have a character named Elizabeth Chen and my mm -hmm. software kept wanting to change it to Cohen and they kept underlining Chen as wrong. Now, I'm part Jewish. I know how many Jewish people there are in the world. I know how many Chinese people there are in the world. And there are a lot more Chinese people than there are Jewish people. So if right. anything should be underlined as wrong, it should be Cohen. But it just speaks to the cultural narrowness that some of these software tools are made because it's underlining ethnic names as wrong. You know, so that mm -hmm. just, that kind of threw me off. I'm sending me a nice little TikTok video that day. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I can't find it, but I can tell you it said something to the effect that because we experience so much more, I don't want to say heartache or pain, but because we have so much more struggle and we have to be more aware of everybody as opposed to simply being in our own little world, that we are able to write broader and write with more depth and write, you know, characters who feel more. And I'm feel paraphrasing. Deeply, yeah. yeah. And it was because that we, we have to deal with all of it, right? And not just from the perspective of the white patriarchy, but also there's, you know, massage noir, right? That comes mm. into play for, for black women and black men. And this whole idea that I don't want a black woman, I want something else, something better. But also like BIPOC women in general have this intersectionality as you've already alluded to. And it just creates this kind of rich, fertile ground for writing these, you know, difficult stories telling them in a way that is more effective if that and i was and like chat wow <laughs> that's amazing and it's 
and it's so true because, you know, part of another piece of this whole life, because part of the storyline isn't only about Barbara and her racial awakening, it's about Sebastian and his kind of cultural identity growing up, single parent home, you know, gang yeah. involved, you know, very poor. And that's, that was me too. You know, that was me too, growing up in a single parent home with not a lot. My dad and I slept in the same room and, you know, sharing mattresses and crazy things. That's a piece of me too. So there's a lot of pain and struggle on both ends of the spectrum there that to your friend GBT, you can draw from all those wells and different mm-hmm. moments and bring those yeah. forward. And I think that's why I'm choosing some of the books I've been reading. And I, you know, I start reading some books that, you know, people like and so forth. And I just find them so superficial and vapid that I just, there's just not enough there to hold my interest. So I definitely am DNRE, you know, did not finish DNF, sorry. Um, Way more books than I used to because I Mm -hmm. value my time and I value my reading time and I want to make sure that I'm using it in a worthwhile way. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I, I, I feel the same way. I honestly, I thought that there were no more people of color writing books for women because I couldn't find any for so long. And so like, I'm so happy to be doing this podcast because I am just kind of like falling over <laughs> with all of these great books. And so, and there is just death and, and all the great things there. So what is the most difficult topic you've ever written about it's it's hard because this one with race and identity just struck a a deep chord for me in a way that I hadn't expected you know Mm. I was foremost concerned with being true and authentic to my black readers and getting their their lived experience as accurately portrayed as I could but I did not anticipate how much that that would impact me and my own life and experience and reflections. And that has been, that has been very painful. And even more so than when my first book, when I was, you know, I was having bedroom challenges, I felt broken. I didn't know what my body was supposed to be doing and I didn't know what it all felt like. And, you know, I went through a lot of struggle with that. And that's what the first book is about. And I would have thought that that would have been the book, but by far this book has been so, you know, such a revelation for me. Wow. That's so beautiful. Really, that is, thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful that like that, this book, and you explain like this, your first book was about you know, bedroom issues and things of that nature yeah, and my body. Like about, and I'm know, like, yeah, only like, if you think of it, this data shows only 37% of women finish in the bedroom where 77% of men finish. So no wonder it's like, you got all these women who look, like, I got a headache and these guys are like, come on, honey, you know, because like, they're not having the same experience together and yeah. they're not on the same page about those things. And in many ways that disparity exists with race too. It's like, you have these different cultures that are seeing the world in very different ways. You have BIPOC people who are like, hold on now, what about X, X, and X? And then you have, you know, non-marginalized people being like, what are you talking about? You know, so you kind of have the same disparity going on on a much larger yeah. scale. I think there was a lot of, you know, ha- you know, hurt and, and shame involved in both issues, especially for women who 
feel like they're broken and they're the only ones and they're not the only ones. Right, right, right. That's, again, very powerful. You do tackle the, hey, let me talk about this with you (laughs) in your books. (laughs) Like, you're bold and brave in your writing and that's beautiful. But yet it was the race identity that was most difficult for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. But we've talked a little bit about the publishing industry. And so I have this the second segment, the audacity. I'm going to have to fix this. BIPOC writers. Okay. Because you have to be, you have to have a level of audacity to say, screw publishing industry standards and norms. And like you said so greatly, I'm an independent writer. So I can, I can go my own path. I can make my own path. And so what was it that gave you, Paulette Stout, the audacity to say, I'm going to write books and publish them myself. And by the way, I'm going to be a 15-time award-winning published author with a huge fan base because I'm that bitch. Like, what gave you that <laughs> audacity? I can say that part, but, you know, at the first, at the, at the beginning of it, I thought, okay, well, this is my other choice. The other path isn't working out. But the more mm-hmm. I learned about the traditional publishing path for me it wasn't actually suited to my personality because i wanted creative control over my content and stories i wanted to be able to have input over how the covers were and the marketing and i wanted ownership over my intellectual property and i wanted to publish on a faster timeline because i'm a former new yorker with zero patience and i have <laughs> You know, my Clifton Strengths personalities are just like achiever, blah, 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 all the ones that are like super impatient. So I think that when you triangulate all those things, independent publishing actually is better suited to my personality and goals. So I think that's where the audacity came in. And it just kind of grew because I felt like the more I learned about it, the more I was like, hey, wait a minute. It was almost like you had your, you know, your was a red pill, whatever the moment you woke up and then you can't see the world like it was. Right. And you look at publishing in a different way. You don't look at traditional publishing like this castle on a hill that you're just trying to get a hitch a ride there and maybe someone will let you in the door and maybe you'll be accepted. So like, screw that. I'm over here at my beach house. I'm going to go <laughs> on the beach and have, you know, you know, s'mores and, you know, later for you. You know, I don't care what's going on in that castle because I'm happy over here. So right. you can go to the castle, but it's a really long journey and you don't want to not get in the door. <laughs> and if you get in the door, you may not get the support you need. You get, and then again, you hear the horror stories of people who having books done, ready to go, and then pulled, you know, you have, you know, people thinking that they they made it, they got their agent, they got their publishing deal. And then when the second book comes around, they're like, yeah, no. And then they're back in the trenches to start all over again. Yeah. And who knows how long that will all take. And for me, I look at that structure and it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm mm-hmm. somewhat of a logical person. I just feel like, why would I do all those things for such little reward when I can do this stuff over here and you know, keep the whole reward for myself. And yes, it's a lot of work. And yes, I do have some advantages because I have been marketing my entire life. I'm an extroverted person, so I'm more willing to kind of put myself out there. And I do have some 
you know, organizational skills that are very helpful, but it doesn't, it just, it just didn't make sense to me anymore. So I think yeah. that's where the audacity came from. I like that. I like that. Your audacity came from the fact that you knew yourself better than, than most people do, I think, right? Because <laughs> most people, they're just like, and I'm most people, by the way, I'm talking about, I'm most people, not even like, you know what I'm saying? Just knowing that you had the skill set, you knew exactly what you you could and would do. And so like, you aren't vacillating at all. While most people are <laughs> always vacillating. Do I want an agent? Do I want to go this way? Yeah, it's I just crazy. Back to like, I, you know, I started doing some author coaching. So, you know, I'm always talking to like my clients about the goals. Like, what is your goal f- for being an author? Are you just trying to tell stories and connect with readers? You know, if that's the case, then maybe indie is a good path for you. If you feel like you grew up, you were an MFA, and just it seems wrong to you to not have an agent and go through a traditional path and have your books at, you know, your local bookstore or a bigger bookstore. That's fine too. Both paths are valid, but you need to know the pros and cons of each and which is better suited to your goals. So for me, and then, you know, just even saw a post this week about how few deals agents on average are closing a year, you know, zero to three or four across all of their client base. It kind of just shows you how insular the publishing industry has become and how few authors are really letting through the door. And frankly, going back to my little DNF list from earlier, (laughs) of my 12 DNFs, eight were traditionally published books. Yeah, Like my indie published books are just interesting and rich and different and they're keeping me engaged and they're stories that are maybe harder to categorize but really deeply enjoyable. So... Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of innovation happening in the indie space that yeah. isn't as much on the traditional publishing side. I 100% agree with you. I 100% agree. So if you had the opportunity to speak to the entire publishing industry, you know, trade industry, right? And and what would you say? I am the industry. So what would you tell me, you know, as the entire five right here what would you say and to them as an independently published author who is successful and finding success in her own way what would you say i mean i would say it's time for you to open your eyes and see that there is a lot of quality writing happening by self-publishers i think that they many fall back on the antiquated notion that they hold the monopoly on quality books. And mm-hmm. that is false by a long shot. And even in the way they calculate their metrics and their sales figures, they don't even include mm-hmm. ebooks and a lot of that. And they don't include and it's self-published sales and so forth. There are certain categories self-published, like they own them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they talk about a, a category being dead and then it's like the top seller in Amazon because they're not even thinking about paranormal cozies, you know? Right. They're not writing that, you know, (laughs) or whatever, you know, paranormal women's fiction. They're not writing it, so it doesn't exist. It's kind of like there's a whole world of book reading happening outside of their narrow chamber, and it's time for them to acknowledge that. Well, I'm going to pass that on to... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What does that be? I, I, I find it 
interesting because I think that's the the gist of what most writers say to the publishing. Why are you so stuck on stupid? If your goal is to make money, you're missing out on a whole lot of money because right. you are still stuck on that very limited view of what is good writing, which is, you know, oh, well. I, I guess. You know, I get when I get turned down by book festivals and so forth because we don't take any publishers. To me, that's just kind of an echo of the standard the publishing industry is sending. Oh yeah, like quality. So yeah, you know, judge and I think it's a it's a way to. Yeah, and I think it's a way to to kind of say we we are a higher standard book festival, and and no, you're not because you're missing out, like you said, on great writers and great books. Okay. We are almost done, Miss Stout. But I want to give you an opportunity to share some of this amazing book and some of Barbara and uh, I love him, by the way. I know. I love me some Sebastian. Like Sebastian Kingsbury. I was like, yes, I am here for it. I'm here for it. Snake tattoo and all. I'm here for it. It's, it's spicy, y'all, so, but it's I love them. So I'll read you from the beginning of the book because at least they have an appearance of both characters in that section. So in the, this is the opening of chapter one of What We Never Say. I'm sorry. I did the same. What Eyes Can't See. Oh my God, wrong book. Yes, Eyes Can't See, folks. Sorry about that. So this is it's a dual POV book and this is Barbara's perspective. So it's chapter one, Barbara. Waves lap the hem of my nightgown the wet sand seeping through from hours of sitting. The fabric floated in a moment of blissful weightlessness before the undertow sucked the magic away, just like my life. It was my wedding day, only I wasn't the bride. Not anymore. Joe, my ex-groom, was off betting someone new. No doubt the owner of the red fob. I found it moments before I saw her owner wearing my fiance in the bed we'd shared together for three years. My fairy tale world shattered by dental floss masquerading as underwear. <laughs> Another wave rolled in, this one chillier. No two were alike. Some caressed like bathwater, sharing gifts from the ocean floor. Others were icy. The dark depths reluctantly crashed to the surface. A reminder that the whole truth is always there, lurking. Same as my discovery about Joe. The signs were there, despite my willful blinders. Joe's wandering eye in social situations, his whistling after evening business dinners, his lack of disappointment when I had to work late. Both our jobs were demanding. I was on track to make general counsel at my company at age 31, a huge accomplishment for anyone, let alone the only black woman on the legal team. My mistake was thinking Joe understood and supported me. He knew the sacrifice and success demanded, or so I thought. A whopping misstep in a life founded on precision. Not that I had much choice. My dad, a famed lawyer himself, expected perfection, as did the rest of our high-achieving family. Failure was unthinkable in the Washington household. It's rare occurrence to receive blank stares like you were speaking a foreign language and was easily dismissed as an outlier. Our norm was excellence. Perfect grades from kindergarten through college, passing the bar exam on the first try, getting the dream job, meeting the ideal guy, a smart, accomplished, driven black man even my dad liked. Instead of buying him off, as he attempted with my past boyfriends he didn't like, they became fast friends. 
that took my breakup with Joe almost harder than I died. Until now. Until today. I rubbed my arms, building up friction to warm myself, but the chill penetrated my bones so deep I feared it stayed forever. I inched backwards, the sand sticking to my pruned fingers as the morning sun peeked over the horizon. It was a beautiful day. My wedding pictures would have been glorious. The, ra the reality hit me like a two-ton weight. Another wave crashed in, foam fizzing as the water receded. I wiggled my toes in the sand, willing myself to feel less abandoned. My mom's absence hit worse at times like these. She's been gone nearly 14 years, yet each morning I wake hoping her cancer had been a dream. Mom, I need you today. I don't know if I'll manage to be there before Rebecca. My eyelids drifted closed to listen for her. Instead, my dad's voice rang through. Suck it up. You're a Washington. <laughs> no, I could listen to you read, boy. This is good. I love your reading. The audiobook voice. for this is just so phenomenal. My artist was, she was just. I am Elizabeth K. everybody. Look for the audio. It's just so good. So good. She just got the emotional resonance of every moment so beautifully. And I was really happy to support such a great Black creator, bringing Barbara and Sebastian to life. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really thrilled with how the book came out and the stories that they tell. And what I like to think about is the books have heavy themes, but they're pretty delicious, I think, overall. So yeah, that's it. That that part, right? You deliver such like it's heavy hitting, but also you give great, you know, okay, time to take a little break from the heavy <laughs> and get a little spicy, like in the ocean. Cake by the ocean. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, just and, phenomenal and book. Think, thank you. And I think that I am intentionally including open door intimacy in my titles, going back to being intentional. I feel like the gap between men and women in terms of sexual satisfaction has left women's fiction kind of in this chase place that you have these like really heavy stories, but then there's there's no intimacy involved. And for, I like to explore like the full human experience in my exactly. books. And the full human experience includes relationships and intimacy. So mm -hmm. I didn't put as much in my second book in What We Never Say. It had, you know, kind of like a sexual harassment theme and had three POVs in there and just wasn't as much space. But then everyone's like, let's go need more intimacy in the next book. So, you know, I feel like my readers, I'm finding readers that are signing up for that kind of an experience for a mm -hmm. fun, quick read that's about something simple heavy but the prose is really approachable easy to consume and it's got some spice in it yeah you have like such it's harmonious that that is my word right because i don't like balance balance means it's stagnant it's just sitting there not doing anything right but your your writing is harmonious you have enough of everything so that it sings one beautiful note and so that's like bomb really really thank you wow thank you yes of course Okay, so can I play a game with me? Sure. Okay. <laughs> looking all naughty. If you can't see her face, I know. she's all looking all naughty. Yeah. Look, I'm so glad because I can't hide anything, right? So if <laughs> if I were like talking to someone I didn't really I wouldn't be able to hide it. So thank all the gods and the little minions that I I never had that experience. So the game is called Tell Your Story. 
Mm. And you have an option. I can either use the title of your book or I can use your first name. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm... Wait, the title of my first book or my current book? Your current book. Okay. Yeah, or I could... Okay. Yeah, here's the title. What I okay. can see. Let's go with that. Okay. So basically what I'm going to do is give you a word. I'm going to turn this into an acrostic word list. So you got a lot of words. <laughs> okay. And then I'm just going to give you a word and you're going to give me a little small anecdotal story. Okay. That deals with that word. It doesn't have to be about writing. It doesn't have to be about the book. It could be about anything you want it to be about. But I am using the letters of your book to create the words. Okay. Okay. All right. So here we go. That's a lot. You you have a lot. We can, we can just choose a couple words or one word if you want. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. And... You have to uh, end it with either hashtag writer's life, writing while BIPOC, or it really did happen, hashtag. <laughs> so let's see. First word, worry. Worry. Um, I'll tell you a story about worry. A little anecdotal, hey, this has happened, da, 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 whatever you come up with. But it has to be true. It has to be yours. Well, it's, I hope, hopefully this matches. I used to worry about everything. My dad was just a worrier, just constantly, constantly, constantly. And when I connected with my husband back when I was 20, um, you know, he just didn't have that same approach. And I learned to worry less from him. And I find that so freeing to not be stuck in that worrying place all the time. Mm -hmm. So I guess hashtag writer's life, I guess. Yeah. Good. See, you're, you're great. You're, you're going to be fine with these 1500 words you have. <laughs> Endurance. Hindrance. Oh, hindrance. Yes, because H. H, uh -huh. H, okay. I, I was wondering if you were jumping around. Okay. <laughs> Hindrance. I I I think that reading negative reviews about your books is always like a dangerous place to go. And when I was launching my first book, Love Only Better, there were a lot of early copies out, like hundreds, and people started posting on Goodreads. And I read the nastiest review about the book and about how the things that like, were impossible and didn't happen. And these were things I had personally lived through. So obviously they did happen. And I was in such a dark place for two days. I almost was going to pull the book because I'm like, I have just done made the biggest mistake in my life. Like I should never have published this book. So the hugest hindrance is anchoring your, your career or self-worth on the opinions of one or two people. Hmm. So hashtag writer's life. Wow. There you go. Technical. Technical. So part of the indie life is making mistakes. So in my first book, my editor encouraged me to position it more as a romance. So I gave it a romance cover and it was very 
bubbly and I thought I had some over here for you. Oh, here's one. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a romance cover. So it was a huge hindrance for me because it positioned the book wrong. Then I panicked and redid the cover to make sure everyone knew there were lady parts involved. So this was the cover of the book the second time. This got banned by um, Amazon ads and Facebook ads, and it was called Obfuscated Profanity. And I had to pivot and redo the cover. So okay. the wrong cover can be a huge hindrance. So take the time, folks. Make sure you get that right if you are listening and you are an author, because the package is what sells your book. So don't ever get too attached to it. If it's not working, pivot. So... Don't let that kind of a hindrance keep you back. Okay. You know your word was technical. Oh, technical mistakes. I've used the wrong cover. There you go. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to, you I'm know what? Say, I'm going to yes. give that to you. Thank Hashtag you. what? It really did Hash, happen. <laughs> it really did happen. It really did happen. <laughs> I wish we could see these. You know what? I want to show these covers. I love the cover I with the, you, is I that a pink grapefruit? files if you want to post it together in your yes. notes or wherever you post your oh my gosh is that a pink grapefruit it was a half of a grapefruit and they called it obfuscated profanity so oh, and i was like but, oh yeah but you let all the books up with the bananas you're not letting the grapefruit book up you know so that became a whole like women's equality whatever because like you're letting the bananas not the grapefruits like what like are we dirty <laughs> it's a grapefruit you know so it became a grapefruit thing. Yeah, but then it was like, what's the book about? Is it nonfiction? It was just like a stupid cover. So, but now, oh my I gosh, I, that's an anthology: <laughs> bananas and grapefruit. Like, if if you ever decide to do that, count me in. Okay. I would love to write in that <laughs> anthology. Yeah, bananas and grapefruits. Yeah, I love that. Give me one minute. Okay, little cough. Your next word is ethos. I think it's so important to have like an ethos that governs what you craft in your hmm. writing and like that having that truth and authentic approach and the ability to kind of question the social mores for me is an important ethos that i follow hashtag writer's life wow i you know is that a thing like do writers create their own ethos of writing or is yeah, that just a paulette I mean, thing I mean, I'm sure that it's lots of writers have it, I would assume, you know, having their why. Like, what is your why? What is the approach that you are taking in the craft you're doing? I mean, some people just might write stories because they like the stories. But I feel like my work is a little more mission-driven, I guess. And it's not mission in terms of I'm trying to convince you of something. It's more of I'm trying to expose these life experiences to more people who may be unfamiliar with them. That sounds like a course you need to teach. <laughs> creating your writer ethos because I would take that course in a heartbeat. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've never yeah. heard that before. Ever. Hint, hint, wink, wink, not, not. Did you get it all? Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. <laughs> yuck, yum. So one yuck and one yum. Whys are hard for me. <laughs> yuck for me is when I'm reading a book, we didn't get to talk about this, but I have many, many passionate thoughts about racial sensitivity in writing, you know, whether it's the white savior thing or, you know, offensive, you know, inner dialogues, harmful stereotypes, you know, any of those types of things. Like those are super yucks for me. Those will just stop me dead 
in my mm-hmm. tracks when I'm reading a book. So that's a yuck. Hashtag. What, what were my choices? Writer's Life. This really happened. And what was the other one? And Writing While BIPOC. Writing While BIPOC. And Reading While BIPOC, too. Hashtag. Mm-hmm. A yum is a book that makes me forget I'm reading. You know. Oh. Hashtag. You know, writing while BIPOC. I love when I'm reading a book and I just totally forget I'm not walking the life of the characters in the pages, smelling the smells, feeling the feels. And that's just, that's the the epitome of, of a reading experience for me. So that's a super young. Because that's how you write. You want the same experience you give. I because- do. I do. I, I, I want to forget. I'm, I mean, sometimes I'm, when I'm editing, I forget that I'm supposed to be editing and I have to go back and do the same passage again because I get like absorbed. Into the book. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That That's what I said in the beginning. I felt like I was just there walking around in your book. And like in there. Yeah. 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 It's so easy to suspend belief in my reality and just jump into that. So, yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Wanting what you give. Whoa encounters i've been very surprised by the encounters i've had when i'm out in person and i'm tabling and selling books in person people are so enthusiastic about the stories i'm telling and like it's hard to appreciate that when you're sitting alone in a room or you know when you know you're one of twenty thousand books that gets published a month you know on amazon and you're just kind of one of many and people don't know what to choose so when you're able to sit with people and and encounter and talk to them about your work you know i rarely don't sell a book people will just give me a chance and that's all you can ask for when you're an author so hashtag that's really happened Oh, beans. So would you say that that's one of the most important aspects of like getting yourself out there is actually doing the table work and getting out among the public? I think so. I mean, there's, you know, a few, in, you know, kind of luminaries in the indie space have talked about like doubling down on being human in this AI kind of world. And I think as independent publishers, many of us sell most of our books online, whether those are audio or print, you know, or ebooks. We sell a lot of our books online rather than in a bookstore. We don't do book tours, you know, going around the country and stopping in different places. So I was, you know, definitely been getting a little bit more intentional about getting out into public and kind of talking with readers about my stories and hopefully, you know, encouraging them to give one a chance. What I can see is definitely the book that people are gravitating towards, which I'm really exciting. I'm excited to hear that. I think it's important for us. I know that there are many introverts in the writing community, but I do believe that getting out in public can be a really mm-hmm. valuable, rewarding experience. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you. Because I like to get little nuggets from very successful writers, you know, because aspiring writers tune in and like, you know, it's good to hear those types of things. Secrets. I think secrets can be really a, a very powerful motivator for characters in books. Um, and mm. I think the secrets are, was the core of my first book, Lovely Better, where, you know, I was going through this kind of intimacy struggle and I wasn't sure what to do about it. I wasn't sure whether to use a pen name for the book because of the sensitive nature of the story. I was still working at other companies at the time and I just... I kind of wasn't sure what to do it, but I just felt like keeping that secret was wrong. I felt like if I'm encouraging readers and women who read the books or people who identify as women who read the book 
to be brave in their own life, then I had to be brave as well and um, not keep that secret, let that secret free. So I use my own name, you know, I've been talking about it for years now. And it's just so liberating because it's not the secret's gone. And when you keep the secret, you may make you feel like it's shameful and talking about it releases that shame. So definitely encourage people not to keep secrets. Hashtag this really happened. I love that. Absolutely love that. I almost got fired from teaching one year. Well, probably most years I taught, but <laughs> but I remember telling a, a class of creative writing students that victimhood is a, a choice. Like you, no one makes you a victim other than yourself, because at the end of the day, when you are like, oh, I can't talk about it. I can't do anything with it. I don't want people to know about it. It's that guilt. It's that shame. It piles on and it keeps you in that space of isolation. And that is where the victim mentality comes from. But the moment you open your mouth and say, this is what happened and it happened to me and I don't know how I'm going to deal with it, but this is how it happened, right? And the moment you give voice to it, then you have already taken off that victim hood and now you're in survivor space and that's yes. where the healing and the growth comes from and but oh my gosh you know it was high school they weren't ready yeah that's <clears> anyway. a huge theme of what what we never say it's what we never say those secrets that we yeah from people that we feel are shameful and we can't let out and that is around you know kind of a sexual harassment situation in the second book mm-hmm. but that was around secrets so the character went through yeah. that transformation too so totally hear you yeah. Yeah. Very good. Corruption. That's oh. a great word. You're giving me some opportunities here <laughs> to pull out my word nerd girl hat. Like really. Yeah. I think that it's easy to mistake the corruption we see in the industry around us as the norm mm-hmm. and that we have to kind of navigate that space and i think the beautiful part about being an indie publisher is that you can set your own rules you don't need to accept or you can find your ways around some of the corruption that is there so if you can't get your you know your book somewhere into a store you can always walk up to someone and ask them if they'll consign you know there's there's ways for you to navigate the corruption and the boundaries that are in the industry hashtag okay we are we're almost done we're on like the a in can and can't we're doing good anonymous or anonymity however whichever version of it you want yeah i mean i touched on this a little bit but it's it's easy for writers to want to kind of stay in this anonymous place when you're writing, you just want your work to speak for itself. But the reality is, is that you need to get out there and promote your books and talk about why you're writing them and let people know about them. Because if you're anonymous, unfortunately, sometimes you know, your books are more anonymous than they deserve. So if you think about getting out and talking about them, whether that's in marketing or doing podcasts like yours, or just, you know, speaking at a library in your community or talking to a class. I think the confidence that you'll have talking about your books surprised you. 
because you'll be in your happy place talking about your books. Um, and then when you're in your happy place, other people want to read your books. So I would just really encourage people to abandon that, the anonymous, the closet that, you know, they're maybe hoping to stay in or their bedroom or mm -hmm. their office and, and get out. And you'll, I'm sure you'll, I think you'll surprise yourself. Hashtag hmm. writer's life. And she is also a writing coach. So I, I will get some information from her and leave it in the description because that's writing coach material right there. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. I was like, oh, she's preaching to me. She is telling me, get you inside your, <laughs> inside your closet and get out there. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to put that information if you shoot okay, it to me. Thanks. And I'll put it in the description. And if we'll talk. Okay. Very nice. <laughs> Notice. It can be very seductive to get obsessed with getting noticed, being noticed, being in the forefront, and have that define the success for yourself, whether you have it or whether you don't have it. So I would very much encourage people, kind of even before their first book launches, and if you're already on your path, to kind of sit down and have a conversation with yourself about what does success mean to you? Is it getting mm -hmm. noticed or is it something else? Because that can help save you a lot of heartache and mental anguish when, you know, things unfold in your author life. Um, sometimes getting noticed isn't the most important thing to you. And it's important for you to understand that um, as quickly as possible. Hashtag this really happened. Hmm. They're killing it with the gems here. Okay. <laughs> I have a lot of them. Yeah. I have a lot yeah. of letters. Duh. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> we are here at test. I think that sometimes you may have an idea for a story or that I would not shy away from testing yourself because sometimes the consequences of not trying are worse than if you did try. Mm-hmm. Hashtag BIPOC author. Good job. Good job. Seen. Like, I am seen in the book. I think that, you know, being seen is, it can be a very, it, it's a welcoming place as we've been discussing, but it can also be a scary place, especially when you're out and you're networking or you're out in public or in your community. Um, my next book that I'm writing is going to be taking on weight and body size. And as a larger body person, you know, being seen sometimes is a scary place. You don't know how you'll be perceived. You don't know if mm. people will think badly of you because of all the stereotypes around having a larger body, um, lazy and incompetence and so forth. So I would just say give yourself some grace and around... <laughs> you know, how and where you were seen. And if sometimes you're not comfortable, just allow yourself to be uncomfortable and stay away. But sometimes push through that and, you know, be seen and stand tall. So, you know, be, give yourself some grace around how you navigate be where and how you are seen in your life. I love that. And I love that you are, again, tackling a topic in this next book that needs to be tackled. I think, I mean, people look at me now and they're like, you have never experienced that, but I have. 
I have. I was I was a larger bodied person. You know, lupus. What did what you do? I I developed lupus. That's why I'm so thin now. That's all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't want this so, diet. I know. You don't it, want it's, it. It's really oh, don't get me started on the weight thing because I'm that's where I'm like immersed right now. But it's so sad that so often people who are physically ill and not in a healthy place are looked at with you know smiles and support like you've been done a great thing and it's like oh me being sick is really great thank you you know it's like people don't understand the implications of their their quote compliments you know yeah yeah I'm you thank you it's called chechka everyone you know what me to say yeah <laughs> But yeah, that, that's how I used to to answer that, that say that, you know, yeah, it's called lupus. It's the lupus diet. How about it? Ecstasy. I think there are a lot of people that are missing ecstasy in their life. They don't realize how fundamental it is and how important it is to romantic relationships, to partner relationships. You know, having that, you know, our bodies are made to experience ecstasy. And if you don't, and it can it can leave you at a very kind of detached place with partners, but it's such a powerful bonding force between partners too. So I would very much encourage people who are not regularly experiencing ecstasy in their life to kind of dig into that, see why and see what they can do about it. Maybe read Love Only Better and <laughs> get some ideas and, you know, kind of make that maybe a goal for their life and, you know, the next year or so, because I think they would surprise themselves how much they are missing out of the human condition if they're not experiencing ecstasy regularly. Amen, sister girl. Amen. <laughs> I, you know, I, I write erotica and yes, there's lots of sexy time in the series that I, I put out, but also I have this kind of spiritual eroticism that mm. I find way more, you know, but it's rewarding to write, right? Yeah. That moment yeah. of sublimity that has nothing to do with physicality, but that moment that that stretches out forever and ever. But then it's like only that long has, and but I guess that's why everybody associates eroticism with with sex because like mm -hmm. an orgasm does make you feel like it's lasting forever and ever, but it's not. It's like you know couple seconds is over right unless you know you're into tantra and then yay you but of course <laughs> you know i'm just like there's so much more to eroticism and there's like i'm like is this going to be a platform am i going to get on the hello there's a spiritual eroticism that we can attain and i feel like yes because i'm so over i'm so over the whole there's only one aspect and I think it's just become such a corrupt thing. And ecstasy can be experienced. That level of ecstasy can be experienced in every aspect of your life if you just tap into spiritual right. eroticism. I almost, if you had said W for wonder, I know you had worry on W, but like for me, there's a wonder to experiencing, you know, the environment or family members or just being so into your joy and love of something that you come with is like a transcendent thing. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So yeah, you're, you're there. Now this, I'm going to take some creative licensing with and put a dash because I, okay. Exit strategy. So I'm going to give you two answers for this one. One exit strategy is actually a very good book 
written by Lady Cameron that I highly recommend. So hashtag writer's life. But Exit Strategy is a very good book. Go read it. The other piece of it is I think as a writer, you need to kind of understand what you're and I've said this again. For me, I don't have an exit strategy for my writing life because I want it to continue. There are other people who maybe have just one book in them and then that's good and they're going to, you know, peace out. They're happy with that. And that is fine. It is fine to have an exit strategy in your writing life if you don't want to make a career of this. If you only have one or two books in you, that is totally fine. And don't let anyone make you feel otherwise. You know, that's that owning your own path thing. For me, I don't have an exit strategy because I feel like I'm on an on-ramp to something that's larger. So for me, that's that's my journey that I'm, I'm looking forward to pursuing further. Hashtag writing life. Oh my gosh, I love that. I hope you don't try and get an exit strategy because I do believe you're on a journey towards something much larger, you know, because you have a great pen, great voice. Yeah, all the things. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. I know it's been like <laughs> a long time coming, <laughs> but I'm so I'm glad really that we were able. I know you're off season and I'm really grateful for you making time for me. Oh, yeah. This has been fun, Paulette. I feel like I know you a lot better now. I know. I'm just, I'm so happy that we got to know each other and I'm excited to see, you know, where your journey takes you and to be kind of like a little bit of like a, a side seat on that and you know, if I can be of any help or anything, just don't hesitate. Yeah, you're not going to be the side seat. I have your name down <laughs> here and I have all this. I have these little notes by your name because like you're the business. And so and I admire you so much. So I think, oh, yeah, thank you so not much. a side thank seat. You. Yeah, really, I do. I, I do. I, I okay. have to tell you, there are a lot of newer podcasts that I listen to and yours is phenomenal i just enjoy your conversations in oh, immensely so i just want to thank let you, know you. thank you i love that i love when writers tell me about that i mean and i i hope i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing like i felt like this was not me but a calling to do this and so i hope i'm i'm doing right by my by my people I you think know hard doing right by your people you're made, you're doing you your podcast raises interesting questions. You have interesting conversations. And I love how you just kind of deep dig way deep into lots of things. So that's really interesting as a listener to hear. Yeah, good. Very good. Then then next season, you're going to really enjoy it. Um, <laughs> really, really enjoy it. Uh, cool. Okay. So can you tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you, the best and fastest way to get in touch with you? And when can we expect you know, this book to drop and where they can go get it. Yeah. So the best way to get in touch with me is on my website, paulettestout.com. I'm on all social media platforms. I shouldn't be, but I am, you know, <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, TikTok at Paulette Stout author. I'm on X at Stout content, but I'm not on there much lately. And I have a really active blog right now. I'm posting once a week with tips for writers and skills mm -hmm. and you know all kinds of things. So people might want to check that out. What Eyes Can't See, it will be out on February 6th, 2024. And it will be everywhere. It will be on all platforms. It will be on audio, on print and ebook. 
and I hope people give it a chance and it'll be on Hoopla too. So you can use a library card and get it. So Yay, Hoopla! I love, I love Hoopla. Hoopla. It's like the bomb. I'm always like telling people, go Hoopla. So yeah, my books are, it's already on pre-order on Hoopla, you know, on Hoopla and so forth. Apple Books, Google, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Amazon, every place, every format. Okay. Go get it. <laughs> yes, yes. You heard the lady. Go get the book. February 6th. I am excited. I'm very excited. I can't, you know, wait to finish reading it and all that jazz. So, I think, I think that's it, Miss Paulette. This is a good way to start my Saturday rising. So thank awesome. you. Thank you for joining me for this session of Black Writer Therapy. Be sure to follow and leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And keep the conversations going on Instagram using our hashtag Black Writer Therapy. I'm your host and unlicensed therapist, Alishan, reminding you to be kindest to yourself first, always and in all ways. See you guys next week. Bye. In a world where shadows dance and secrets lurk comes an unforgettable saga of broken souls, written by Alishine. Get ready to embark on a gripping journey through time, a dark southern coming-of-age saga that spans over 30 years. Nothing is as it seems. With every turn of the page, secrets unravel, revealing a web of intrigue that will leave you breathless. Breaking is the easy part. Having the courage to look into the mirror of your souls, allowing yourself to be consecrated, to rise harmoniously in alignment with self and the universe, that's the hard part. Join John and Vivian on this unforgettable journey where shattered souls rise, courage is tested, and destinies are forged. The Broken Souls series by Alishan, a gripping four-book masterpiece that will keep you captivated till the very end. Don't miss your chance to experience this compelling tale of love, loss, and redemption. Purchase your copy now and be prepared to have your soul shattered. Because sometimes the darkest paths lead to the brightest light.